Creating Innovation Spaces If you're in the innovation game, you probably ought to meet Madame de Joffrin. Anyone working at the fuzzy front end or trying to find ways to get out of the box could probably benefit from a few minutes of her time. She has a wealth of experience around how to enable this sort of thing. But it wouldn't be easy. You'd have to build a time machine to enable you to visit, but it might repay the effort. Back in the 18th century, she hosted what was arguably the most famous salon in Europe. Not because it was a good place to meet, eat and drink, but because people could share ideas, shape and develop them. In short, they could innovate. She understood that this kind of creative encounter doesn't just happen. It takes careful construction, coordination and management. It's a lesson which would be well taken today when innovation labs and similar ventures are becoming increasingly popular. Whether you call them innovation hubs, maker spaces, fab labs, accelerators, hotspots, you can hardly turn a street corner or a magazine page before you bump into yet another example. The names may vary, but the underlying idea is the same. A place where people can meet to get inspired and supported by each other, to articulate and co-create. Now, all of these ventures are built on the belief that innovation, particularly of the radical game-changing variety, needs somewhere to incubate and flourish, ideally well away from the busy day-to-day -day mainstream. Spaces where ideas can grow, be prototyped, experimented with and ultimately taken up to scale. But there's a risk that many of these labs are being set up simply because it's the fashionable thing to do. Expectations run high, but the very ease with which they can be established means that it's also simple to close them down again. Just as Madame de Joffrin's salons were much more than comfortable surroundings and good catering, so innovation labs and spaces need to be more than a chill-out space with some beanbags on the floor and whiteboards on the wall. So what can we learn from the growing body of research on successful innovation labs and spaces? There seem to be five key principles which underpin their success. Enabling creative collisions, proximity, diversity and interaction, experimentation, prototyping and the use of boundary objects, and management and facilitation. So let's take a closer look at each of these. So let's start with the idea of creative collisions. Back in the 17th century, places like Oxford were full of coffee houses, sometimes called penny universities, because that was the price of admission, including coffee. But it wasn't the hot beverage which drew people so much as the opportunity to mix and exchange ideas. A place where the normal rules of society, governed by status and economic position, were left aside and people could meet and explore new possibilities on an equal footing. A couple of centuries later, and similar hotspots for innovation could be found in the Swiss drawing rooms of Paris, St. Petersburg and Milan, salons like Madame de Joffrin's. Now, innovation spaces like these can flourish in the most unlikely places. For example, Gordon French's garage in Menlo Park, California in the mid-1970s was home to the Homebrew Computer Club, 
an informal group of electronic enthusiasts and technically-minded hobbyists who gathered to trade parts, circuits and information about do-it-yourself construction of computer devices. One of the regular members was Steve Wozniak, who credits this as the place where the Apple One was born. Or Walker's Wagon Wheel Tavern in Mountain View, California. Its name provides a great description of its role. Like spokes on a wheel, people and ideas converged on its centre, and on a Friday night the air was full of conversation. Ideas flew around the place, colliding and often crashing in flames on the floor. But some of them fused, became something bigger, began conversations which carried on over the coming weeks and grew into new businesses. And those businesses began the legend which Silicon Valley was to become. What all of these places have in common is that they're much more than simply meeting points. They work in part because they help provide a crucible within which ideas at the fuzzy front end of innovation can emerge. In this very early stage, it's not clear what the landscape actually involves. Navigating it's like stumbling through thick fog while trying to move forward in a direction which you think is the right one. Entrepreneurs rarely start with the definitive version of their new venture. They may have a broad vision, a sense of direction, but their progress towards it is one of probe and learn, trying out different things, learning through failure and feedback, and pivoting around the core idea until they arrive at their solution. And established organisations operate partly in the same fuzzy mode. Whilst their mainstream innovation offerings can be updated and incrementally improved along clear strategic pathways, finding radical solutions, breakthrough products and services requires approaches which allow for experimentation, failure and fast learning. And that's where innovation spaces like the wagon wheel come in. The old bar has gone, but the role it played is as important as ever. At this early stage, it's critically important to have conversations, explore possibilities, make connections between different worlds of knowledge. Networking is the name of the game. Innovation spaces matter not simply as coffee shops and bars, but for what they represent meeting points where knowledge intersects. Let's look at proximity and interaction next. Just bringing people together may not be enough, even if you get the right mix. We also need to understand the ways in which creative collisions can be nurtured, and that comes down to several things. Research has repeatedly shown that we need to look at the role of brokers people who straddle the boundaries of different knowledge worlds and enable traffic to flow across them. These days we talk knowingly about social capital and the importance of building up networks. It's not what you know, but who you know. But this idea owes much to sociologist Ronald Burt and his research back in the 1990s. The core of his theory is that where two knowledge worlds possess different, non-redundant information, that's to say they know something you don't, then there is a structural hole between them. Brokers provide the bridge between these and are central to effective flow of knowledge across them. A second key point in enabling effective innovation spaces is the need to promote diversity, but also to retain focus and coherence. 
Social networks around knowledge aren't all the same. Back in the 1970s, Mark Granovetter showed that they varied in terms of their connectivity. Much of the time they involved dense connections and people sharing similar and complementary information, something he called strong ties. But for new knowledge to move between networks, we need much looser links between these different worlds, what he called weak ties. Think about the challenge currently facing players in the auto industry. Their world of strong ties may not be enough to help them connect to the very different knowledge worlds they're going to need in the emerging mobility industry. So they benefit from the chance encounters offered by the wagon wheel bar or its 2020 equivalent. Once again, we're in the broker's territory. There's a need for people or mechanisms to help cross these knowledge worlds to act as boundary spanners. Tom Allen's pioneering work in the 1970s gave us some powerful insights into the ways this happens. For example, through technological gatekeepers who are able to see the relevance of external knowledge, but who also have the internal social connections to enable the right person to connect to it. One of the functions which innovation spaces can provide is as a forum where cross-sector innovation can happen. Many problems are essentially similar in nature when abstracted to a high enough level. For example, enabling more efficient utilisation of operating theatres in a hospital can benefit from approaches developed for pit stops in Formula One motor racing or turnaround time reduction in low-cost airlines. Bringing these worlds together and enabling recombinant innovation depends again on brokerage skills and extensive access to multiple networks. Linked to this is the growing understanding of the value of engaging with stakeholders as early as possible in the innovation process. Users, in particular, are a powerful source of ideas. Indeed, research suggests they're often responsible for initiating a significant proportion of ideas which then go on to become major innovations. This goes far beyond using them as passive commentators in focus groups. Instead, they're increasingly being seen as potential co-creators of products and services. Their value is not simply in increasing the idea variety at the front end of the innovation process. They're also key agents in ensuring rapid and widespread diffusion. Adoption depends on innovations being perceived as compatible, fitting into the user's world. So by gathering user insights, which are often difficult to articulate, about the context in which innovations are going to operate will help improve their chances of widespread acceptance. So all of this argues for innovation spaces with a wide open access approach, drawing in users and facilitating co-creation with them. Once again, this requires a boundary space and facilitation to enable it to happen. Examples include the children's labs being designed into Lego's theme parks, or the Lab Campus project of Munich Airport, in which the significant stream of travellers passing through the airport will be offered the chance to engage in innovation activities as a part of their journey. And this highlights another role for innovation spaces. Digital innovation tools allow for extensive collaboration in virtual space, but there is much which requires face-to-face -face interaction particularly when the process of shaping and developing ideas into prototypes begins. 
Finding a place in which these two worlds can intersect, where online and offline innovation can meet, is another important role for innovation spaces and requires the same input of brokerage, enabling translation and connection between these worlds. That brings us on to the idea of experimentation. Creating boundary spaces in which people and ideas can creatively collide is great, but if all that gets transacted there is talk, then it may not help much. Innovation's like an omelette. It can't be made without breaking eggs. So another key component is having a safe space in which to allow the extensive egg-breaking associated with learning something new to take place. And that's the essence of a laboratory, somewhere to play around safely. Innovation research and practice is increasingly clear about the important role of experiment and of play and the need for a discovery orientation in exploring new possibilities. This includes accepting that failure is an inevitable part of the process. But for most organisations, public and private sector, the emphasis is often on reliability and repeatability, not on play and experimentation. Total quality requires conformance and adherence to standards, again, effectively driving out the variation which comes from play. So there's a role for innovation spaces as environments which offer a safe playground in which intelligent failure is seen as a legitimate activity. As the psychologist Amy Edmondson points out in her work on psychological safety, creativity flourishes in a culture where there's perceived support. It's no coincidence that methodologies used in innovation labs closely follow the lean startup or the agile approach to innovation, in which experiment and learning from intelligent failure is a part of the process. The underlying assumption is that the context in which this takes place is supportive rather than judgmental, one which accepts play and accepts failure as part of a learning process. And what's created in such experimentation are essentially prototypes and boundary objects. Innovation begins with ideas locked up in someone's head. Creative interchange and shared exploration can give those ideas shape and energy, but sooner or later there's a need to make them real. Extensive research on innovation in a variety of different worlds highlights the value of problem exploration. So how do we move from vague notions, hunches, half-formed ideas towards something more workable? Not by a single leap, but by a series of stepping stones, bridges, scaffolding, essentially playing with ideas about the problem. As James Dyson put it, prototypes allow you to quickly get a feel for things and uncover subtle design flows. The clue's in the name, prototype. It's not about the finished object, but a, a stepping stone, a testbed for learning, some way of exploring in experimental mode. And prototyping offers us some important features to help. First of all, it creates a boundary object, something around which other people and other perspectives can gather, a device for sharing insights into problem dimensions as well as solutions. It offers us a stepping stone in our thought processes, making ideas real enough to see and play with, but without the lock-in effect of being tied into trying to make solutions work. We can still change our minds. 
It allows plurality. We don't have to play with a single idea. We can bet on multiple horses early on in the race rather than trying to pick the winners. It allows for learning. Even when a prototype fails, we accumulate knowledge which might come in helpful elsewhere. It suggests further possibilities. As we play with a prototype, it gives us a key to open up the problem, break up the shell and explore more deeply. It allows us to work with half-formed ideas and hunches, enables a conversation with a shadowy idea. And it allows for emergence. Something we can't predict will happen when different elements interact. Trying something out helps explore surprising combinations. So once again, there's a clear role for our innovation spaces to provide the context within which prototyping can take place. There's a particular value in doing so in a context where there's also diversity of commentary and input, engaging with prototypes and helping refine them. Now that's easier to do when the prototypes are sketches, but as we move towards more accurate representations and simulations, so there's a need to engage some heavy-duty technological support. This is one of the powerful arguments behind linking innovation labs to maker spaces, fab labs. Essentially, they become environments in which prototyping can extend deep into the development process. And the last thought is around management and facilitation inside innovation spaces. By now, it should be clear that successful innovation spaces are far more than physical environments. Just as Madame de Geoffrin Salon depended on her skill in organising and managing events, so today's labs and spaces need hands-on management. This isn't simply a matter of operations and logistics. There's a skill in brokerage, in coaching and supporting nascent ideas, in planning events, in focusing activities. Successful innovation spaces don't just happen, they're created and managed. And there are several dimensions to this. Convening, bringing people together and publicising the space to attract interesting participants. Combining, ensuring sufficient diversity without losing focus, and then providing enabling mechanisms to help bridge between different worlds. Capability building, supporting the use of methods and processes like, like Lean Startup to equip players in the lab with ways of translating their ideas into value. Coaching, providing support and mentoring to help guide and steer nascent entrepreneurs and ideas. Coordinating and connecting, enabling networking and links inside the community and beyond to external institutions. And community building, creating a supportive peer group and a context which enables cooperation and sharing. Two other features are worth mentioning. The first is around the leadership qualities involved in delivering such a context. There are many examples in history of successful innovation spaces. Thomas Edison's Invention Factory, for example. Or Boss Kettering's Barn Gang, which did so much to pioneer innovations in the emerging car industry. Or Kelly Johnson's famous Skunk Works, coming up with completely different kinds of aeroplane for Lockheed. What they share is an approach to strategic leadership which, while delivered in different styles, provided the above mix of enabling support and direction. And the second key feature concerns building dynamic capability. 
Innovation management is about embedding key behaviours which enable the process to happen repeatedly. But it is also about having the capacity to step back and review those routines. Continually asking the questions around which behaviours to maintain and strengthen, which ones to pull back on or even eliminate, and which new ones to add to the repertoire. In other words, organisations need a capacity for innovation model innovation. And that very much applies to innovation labs and spaces. Whilst we've already learned a great deal, one of the key things into the future will involve building dynamic capability in order to upgrade the ways in which such spaces operate. <music>